Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. And evidently, you know, at times I'm going to find, you know, some issues with with some of the passages that we read. I figured there'd be certain aspects of the literature that I would I would have some problems with. Um, the last episode left me at kind of a kind of a loss, and it really had me thinking pretty heavily about you know AA as a whole, uh, the origination of the program, where it is now, the influence some of this literature really has on how people continue to look at secular folks that participate in the program, the kind of closed-mindedness that seems to happen with the more fundamentalist types or even people that just end up using AA as a recovery tool. Like, there just still seems to be this ideal that AA is the only way. If you're not doing the program a certain way, then you're going to die drunk. I can't get behind that. I just can't, you know? I wasn't really planning on starting this episode off this way, but that last chapter really ended with a bad taste in my mouth. As I look back on... The last three years, uh, today's the 18th that I'm recording this. Um, It's pretty late in the day. My sober anniversary is 12-20-18. So realistically, that put, you know, it's just a day away. Let's say, let's say it's close enough. So if I look back on my last three years and I look at what's really kept me sober, not just sober, what's really kept me feeling recovered, what's really made me feel better, not just better temporarily, but better is an I am doing better in in kind of the Greek philosophical sense of you are what you do. I am doing better. When I look back on what has allowed me to be in a place now where I not only feel pretty secure as a human, more so than I've ever been in my entire life, m- more hopeful for my future uh, than I've ever been in my entire life, more capable feeling. What has me feeling that way isn't this idea that it's all AA and that if anybody did it any differently, they're going to die. But that seems to really be the message in the program. Not the message that the program says it provides, but the one that predominantly becomes the loudest from the people in it. I hear regularly, this is life and death, and I do believe that on some level, but that doesn't mean that that's the only lifeline. When I, I had an interaction with somebody on TikTok, not really a super big interaction, but kind of a back and forth because that's the kind of the message that the person was providing was if you don't do this with God, if you don't do this program a certain way, this exact program, then you're you're basically going to you're not doing it correctly. You're doing it wrong. And our back and forth kind of culminated into him essentially saying plenty of people do things that are against their best interests, meaning that if you do this without God, then you're doing this against your best interests. Kind of a gaslighty sort of a response suggesting that you're still doing it wrong even if you have yourself convinced that you're not. At no point did the person ask me, how does this work for you? At no point did he did he come across and say, hey, I'm interested in learning more about how you, you, you approach this. It was only you're doing it wrong. And after that last chapter, that's exactly how I feel. If you haven't listened to the last episode, uh, you're not sure if you want to listen to the entire episode, the last 20 minutes or so, I talk about the last couple chapters, not the whole, whole chapter, the last couple paragraphs, and... 
the verbiage in that is pretty significantly against the idea that you could find your own way through this program and become successful in this program. That the only way to do it is to fucking conform to a set ideal that was presented by people that were were fairly fucking close-minded, to be realistic and honest. It talked about the founding one of the founder founding members one of the first few to get sober who was an atheist basically having to lie and say that he had found some sort of a spiritual approach to this program so that he wouldn't get kicked out because to him this was the only option so he had to fucking give it lip service which is exactly what i feel like saying good orderly direction is or saying group of drunks is still using the word God, but secretly, quote unquote, having a different belief in it. Just use it to make everybody else feel better. You don't want to get kicked out, right? You don't want to feel like that the last place that is supposed to be accepting of us isn't accepting of us. And the fact that that's in the literature, the fact that people see that kind of shit, and then they go forward in their in their sobriety doing the same kind of stuff that I have an issue with, with people who Bible thump, you know, the, the type of Christians that, you know, there's nothing like, there's no hate like Christian love kind of Christians, the kind of people that tell others how they can live their life and then somehow mask that in a fucking sense of like freedom. Seeing that in a recovery program is, is fucking, it's getting exhausting. It's getting tiring to the point where I, I, I barely go. I'm back to barely going again. Overall, I'm pretty much happier with that. I do miss some of the fellowship. I like that the fellowship is still there. It's still an option. Still kind of like looking for my tribe. I think I'll probably always end up looking for my tribe. But yeah, there's still a part of me that's like, well, I should continue to go in case there's people that need to like find their way and don't feel like they're safe there. But I don't. I don't feel comfortable there. So I'd be forcing myself, be forcing myself to pretend like I'm okay to be there. And I'm not sure if that's the next move for me. It's 11.29 p.m., 12.18.21. Three years ago, roughly, I had it in my head that I was going to kill myself. And roughly 24 hours after that, I was going to exactly do that. I was going to duct tape a hose to my, my truck, funnel the hose into the window, turn the key, and go to sleep, not expecting ever to wake up. Because I didn't feel like I had any other options. So I wake up, I go to AA, I get a counselor. AA essentially tells me that if I don't do it this way, I'm going to die. I find a different group of people that are like, that's not exactly how it goes. But here is another way of looking at AA. I do the program. I get a little better. I have some issues. I go to a counselor, get some medication, do different work along with AA. I get better. I get significantly better. I stop going to AA. I continue to do the work. I continue to get better. I was told continually while I was doing the program, 100% that I will never get over the craving of alcohol. This is but a temporary reprieval. You can never consider yourself recovered or you're just setting yourself up for a relapse to die that could potentially kill you. If you go to parties and events and bars without another purpose, then you're going to relapse and die. And if you stop going to meetings, you stop doing the program, you're going to relapse and die. And that just has not happened. Yeah, I could put the yet on there, but I have no craving There is no obsession. I don't go down the alcohol aisle and fucking break out into a sweat. I don't even care. I don't look at the alcohol any more than I would look at anything else that was not on my shopping list. When I go, I just fucking came back from a party. I am recording this 25 minutes after coming back from a party. 
Um, everybody was drinking. There's a lot of alcohol there. At no point did it even register that I felt like drinking. The reason for that isn't because I have this fear anymore of alcohol. I don't live in the shadow of that fear. It's because it doesn't serve me. I don't need it anymore. My life has improved without it. Just like cutting out any other kind of a dietary thing. Sugar. Certain fucking carbs. Like, I, I don't understand anymore this idea that because I'm not working the program exactly that I'm setting myself up for failure and I'm going to die. And I don't want to live like that anymore. And I don't want to live perpetuating that anymore. So I'm going to continue reading the material as it's written. I'm going to still keep giving my feedback. I think this program has a lot of value for people who need this program. I think the purpose of this program is to provide a, an opportunity for people to find a path that works. Maybe it is the program as it's written and they need that. Maybe it's the program as a stepping stone. Maybe it's bits of the program that they can use with other stuff to kind of make a hybrid sort of a program that works for them, which is closer to what I'm doing. So I, th I still feel there's value in this. I personally am just no longer feeling like AA, as it's written, works for me. That doesn't mean that I'm done with it. It doesn't mean I will never go to a meeting. It doesn't mean that I will never work the steps. It means my relationship with AA has changed no differently than my relationship with alcohol has changed. AA is not what is keeping me sober. Things I've learned in AA are, but the program is not the only thing keeping me sober. You know, and before I get into the next set of readings and into the, you know, the stoic reading, the, the chapters, um... I do kind of want to reflect a little bit just for posterity, I guess, uh, over the last three years. I mean, being um, being sober for this long was never the intention. It was never like the goal uh, for any length of sobriety. At, at first, I just wanted to stay sober because I knew that was the smart thing to do at the time. And I wanted to feel better and I wanted to get better. And now that over the last three years, I feel like I've achieved that, the very minimum, I think that my recovery is the strongest it's ever been. I am so removed, so far removed from the person that I was when I, I walked through the doors for the first time three years ago. I barely recognize that person. I looked at some emails that I had sent. You know, when I broke up, when I broke things off with my fiance, I did it over email. And at the time, it seemed reasonable because that's how we communicated. We didn't have big conversations in person. We spoke about most important things over messenger or email. That was really just an out for me. Like I should have been fully fucking capable of meeting her face to face and ending things properly. I should have been capable of, you know, fully communicating my needs. There should, there was so much that I should have been capable of. And I just wasn't because I wasn't healthy at all. And she shouldn't have had to deal with any of that. Looking back at those emails, the things that I was saying, you know, it's interesting because that, that is like kind of a time capsule to this period. The emails that I sent her three years ago, they, they started in early November and ended shortly uh the January you know like January 10th or something was the last email that we really exchanged and it's interesting to see that moment and and to see when I ended things to see our brief communications because there was like a car that was still there see how I reacted or interacted with her just a few days after I had tried to kill myself and got into uh, AA like the 23rd I think it was there's an email where she asked me about some alcohol because I had been hiding in the basement making my little crafts and we were in the process of doing some remodeling in the house and her sort of liquor cabinet was downstairs and I had been using that um, as a supplement. I had my fifth that I bought to go along with the beer that I was drinking 
but I, I was also drinking my way through that once that fifth ran out. And at first I was just replacing it. And then I just stopped fucking replacing it. And then after a while, I just drank it all. I just drank everything that was down there. And she sent me an email asking me if I knew where that alcohol was. And I was just plain honest with her really probably for the first time. Not that I was dishonest. I wasn't liar lying to her. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like trying to like hook up with other people. I, I did bring things to her when they bothered me. There was a couple times where I brought our lack of physicality to the table, but there at the end, the last four or five months when it was really getting bad, I wasn't communicating with her. So might as well have been lying. I was pretending. I was pretending that things were okay as we were planning our wedding and putting deposits down, thinking that I was just going to pull myself out of the depression that I was in. Um, so she asked me about this alcohol and I was plain, blunt, and honest. I told her I was, I, you know, I had been struggling with a severe drinking problem. I drank all the alcohol. I'm in counseling uh, and in recovery for it now. Um, that doesn't solve the missing alcohol. And if, if you need me to, I will send you some money. And she basically said that she just wished she, that I'd said something and then left it at that, that I didn't need to send her any money. I didn't tell her about my attempt. I didn't try to like pull in sympathy, but it was almost basically night and day. The communication style changed almost immediately. Not that, not to say that I was fixed or cured or better, but that was my first instance. A couple of days after being in the program, it was my first instance to really have an opportunity to be honest with somebody that I hadn't really fully been honest with. And I chose that honesty. And that seems to be a theme that for the most part has carried through. There's been times where I haven't been fully honest with my partner or with people that I was with, and it always went poorly, obviously, since I've been sober. But I can say that it's gotten easier to be a, be honest 100%. And again, that, that honesty isn't meaning that I just lied to people all the time. That honesty meaning when something is inside me, a feeling, and I can put words to it, then I express those feelings. Because it takes a certain kind of an honesty to reach a point in your life when you can do that with people that you care about and trust they're going to stay around. And if they don't stay around, then then trust yourself to be okay with that. And I've gotten to that point. And to see proof of that, to see me before when I wasn't at that point, and to see me grow over time to being in that point is, is this why I'm here now. That's what I'm doing now. That's what I want to do now. That's who I am as a person now is this honest person. I just got a new job. I got the new job based on my, my abilities in my other jobs. I got the new job based on, well, a good recommendation from a friend who told the person that they should consider me, but that was all they did. I got the job. I was honest about my crime. I was honest about my recovery. The crime was necessary because they were going to do a background check. The recovery was necessary because that was actually the introduction that she had given was that she, she had shown him my TikTok in just passing because she was looking at it when, you know, uh, during her break and he just, they have the kind of relationship where, you know, they share stuff like that. When she had shared it, it wasn't with the intention that I would end up trying to get a job there, but because she had shared it, that became a part of the conversation. I was honest about my past work experience some of which I hadn't done the best jobs at and some of which I had. I was honest about the things that I wanted and we had a good conversation. And because of how I was able to present myself now, my references, the way that they were talking about me, this person went above and beyond to get me a position at their at their facility. You know, it's not like I'm getting, I'm not being put into like some high level management position. It's, it's a starting position, but it's at a good company and it's based on my current state and this person came out to see me they drove on a saturday to give me my interview because i worked 
full time and I wasn't able to at another time. This is a vice president of this company, one of them. He came out on my lunch break at the job that I'm currently working at to give me a follow-up interview and the chance to kind of explain myself a little further dealing with my past to give him an opportunity to kind of see the kind of person that I was. This is all that that's all from just being not just sober. Not, and that kind of calls back to where I've grown in my recovery. This all didn't have to do with my sobriety. It didn't have to do with AA didn't fucking get me that job. Not even really working the steps. <laughs> working the steps got me into a place where I felt comfortable enough that I could work on me as a human. That's what got me the job. That's what got me continuing on with the podcast. That's what got has gotten me the group of friends that I have now. None of them have ever even really seen me drink. None of them have ever seen me drink. Honestly, the ones that are the closest to me right now. They've never seen me at my worst. And when I tell them about that stuff, they have absolutely no way to rectify that with the person I am now. It sounds like I'm talking to, about somebody else. They don't even, like, they just they just hear it as stories. They don't see that reflected in me. So looking back at where I was three years ago and where I am now is really healthy. But it's also just an indicator that I feel like I've kind of grown into, I've evolved into the next phase of my recovery. I feel very confident in saying that. I don't know what that's going to look like exactly. I do know that this podcast is still going to be a part of that and the people that I meet through it. Um, but it's possible that my tone's going to change about some of this. So I do apologize if that's the case and if that ends up throwing some people off. Um, but I will not be able to kind of pretend that that's not happening. I, I have a feeling I'm going to be a little bit more harsher on some of the literature just, just because of that. But what I won't do is I won't bash people who choose this program and I won't try to steer them away. This is all my opinion. This is all just how I feel about all this based on current circumstances. A little bit of past stuff based on just like how my first like attempt at starting a meeting and stuff went. But I'm just going to say it again. I want people to find their path in recovery, whatever that looks like. And I refuse to sign up for an idea that I know what's best for other people. I barely knew what was best for me. It's all just been like kind of bumper car in and around. And now that I'm finally finding my pace... I can see that similar to what Bill Wilson was saying in that letter that he wrote, uh, my path isn't just because of AA. Uh, so with that, I'm going to get into the Stoke reading. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on that since I feel like I've really gone a lot overboard with, with this sort of like opening share. So we'll kind of like hip fire through the Stoic reading and then we'll get right into the fourth step and the fourth tradition. I think this episode is going to run a little long. I think that's okay, given that it's kind of like my personal, you know, celebration of the fact that I've got three years or essentially have three years. But after this, it should re return to kind of closer to an hour long episodes. I hope that I hope this the length of this one is okay for folks. Uh, and without further ado, right into the Stoic reading. This is for December 21st. What do you have to show for your years? Many times an old man has no other evidence besides his age to prove he has lived a long time. Seneca on Tranquility of Mind, 3.8b. How long have you been alive? Take the years, multiply them by 365, and then by 24. How many hours have you lived? What do you have to show for them all? The answers for many people is not enough. We had so many hours that we took them for granted. All we have to show for our time on this planet are rounds of golf, years spent at the office, time spent watching mediocre movies, a stack of mindless books we hardly remember reading, and maybe a garbage full of toys. We're like the character in Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. Mostly, I just kill time, he says, and it dies hard. One day, our hours will begin to run out. 
it'd be nice to be able to say, hey, I really made the most of it. Not in the form of achievements, not money, not status. You know what the Stoics think of all that? But in wisdom, insight, and real progress in the things that all humans struggle against. What if you could say that you really made something of this time that you had? What if you could prove that you really did live, insert number, years, and not just live them, but live them fully? Yeah, I think that's actually a really healthy um, little passage to uh, to have read with with everything that's been going on. Uh, you know, in the, the last week or two, I have been reflecting pretty heavily in the last three years. I've done a lot myself in the last three years. What I haven't allowed myself to do is to get caught up in the idle time. It's fine that I've had idle time. I can't stress and live in anxiousness because I allowed myself periods of time where I did not feel like I progressed. As long as I didn't backslide, as long as I didn't cause new damage, as long as things weren't going poorly, I progressed. So I get the sentiment of this passage that, you know, fill your time up, make sure you're using the best of it, blah, blah, blah. But also... I think it's really unhealthy to be obsessed with that. And that's that's something I feel like I was and have kind of an off again, on again relationship with, especially when it comes to relationships. I mean, it's really something I've kind of beat over the head in, in this and just in general. I have a hard time uh, on occasion really coming to terms with the fact that I'm of a certain age and it's going to be really hard for me to find somebody to be with. I also have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that there's not a really big mark that I've made, that there is no legacy of me, that for the most part, outside of my small circle of people that I've really encountered most recently, uh, there's not a, not a lot that's going to be left behind. So what I really need to do in order to change that is to really, like this said, look at what's important. Money, finances, that kind of stuff's never really been important to me. I might be struggling with that now, and that, that could be a, a thing I'm going to have to come to terms with when I get older. But I've never really been driven by those things. My value doesn't come from that. I don't feel like other people's values come from the things they make, the widgets they produce, the money they earn, the physical things that they own. But what I've always found interesting and fascinating is, per, is learning people's stories. While I don't think I'll have like a permanent tribe... I also know that I have experienced the most happiness in my life, especially recently and while I've been sober, when I am with people. As much as sometimes I don't want to be around people, when I am with people, and I don't mean like every single minute, when, I, when I'm with people and I just encounter their lives and I, and I am a part of it and I joke with them and I talk with them and I offer myself uh, to be of service to them. That's when I'm the most happiest. When I, I have a friend, she's really close to me. I had some ATM thing happen where I, the ATM took my, took, said it gave me a hundred dollars and then I didn't actually physically get it. And the banks are being weird about just giving me that money because they can't f pinpoint it, even though I have the time that it happened and I have my card information. They're not able to just look that up. There has to be a full dispute and investigation and all this bullshit. It's really stupid. My friend without hesitation reached out and said, do you need $100? Do you need money? Are you okay? And it's been so long since I've actually had that happen. Like not saying that it hasn't. I have other friends that have reached out when I've said I've struggled. But to just like within a second of me posting that, just checking in, are you going to be okay? Do you need help? When I feel like I've done that so many times for other people and I had that returned, like, like that just... It, it, it's just what friends do. And the fact that I have earned that, and as long as I continue to cultivate that, I'll have friends. Uh, you know, and I have, and that seems fucking obvious. 
But a part of cultivating that is like making regular time for them. I get so introverted and I get so caught up in like my bullshit that I forget to do that, to make that time for them. That's the legacy I can leave behind. That's making the most of my life. Being of service doesn't always have to be 12-step calls. Being of service to my friends and my community also can just be showing up to the party and having a good time. It can also be being included in a group conversation about one of the other members' mental health that we don't know how to how to solve or fix or support. And so we're working together to try to find the best solution so that all of us can be of the best support for this other person. It's seeing my friend find his girlfriend and have them talking about getting married and knowing that when they do, that if that happens, that I'm going to be invited to their wedding. Like just that kind of thing is exactly what I feel like this chap, that, that stoic reading is really calling to. And I feel like that is what is making me a success in life. But that also means that I need to show up and that means that I need to participate. And while I can be there and be supportive of my friends, that also means that sometimes I have to just sit there uh, on a Wednesday when I don't want to and listen to the same jokes that we always tell. Like, I mean, participating in life with the sense that I'm going to die tomorrow or could die at any minute and participating in life with the sense that I just want to continue to connect with the people that I care about is a different thing. I went full hog wild in the last three years, like while I was have been sober. I have done all the hobbies. If I can learn how to tattoo, I got into kayaking. I did my 40th birthday. I spent a week in the woods. I have driven to Yellowstone on a kind of a whim. I have had multiple relationships, multiple jobs. I have, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been a crazy three years. And of all that, the thing that seems to be sticking the most and the thing that seems to be the most important is the relationships that I've built with people, that community of people. That's, that's my success. And it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't really gotten sober, really gotten sober. You know, I'm 41 years old. I look 35, 34, based on what people tell me. I feel 30-ish, 35-ish. You know, sometimes I feel 40-something. My lived experience puts me at fucking 50, 60. I don't fucking know. But my evidence of having lived long is hearing people say things like, you're really good at handling situations like this and I could use your help. Anyways, I I hope other people got um, something out of that stoic reading. If not, or if you did or whatever it was, you know, reach out to me. Um, Facebook, uh, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I don't know what's going on with the group that I started. It seemed like it was easy to find, but now it's like I have to click three different things just to find it and searching. Uh, Atheist in Recovery or Atheist in AA, which is the name of it, Atheist in AA, brings up a bunch of other stuff that isn't that group. I don't know if that's just Facebook trolling me or what, but you can find the main page on An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can find me on, you can send me an email at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. Really, Facebook is the best way to reach out to me. I've been giving out all my other handles, but I think until I have guests and stuff on, I just, I'm struggling to keep up with it. I don't have the the focus right now. And I'm hoping that focus issue is really going to change when I start actually treating the ADHD that I'm fucking 99.9% sure that I have. That is going to get set back a little bit with me changing jobs. However, I think I'm going to look into a supplementary program that you can 
get assistance through called Cerebral. If anybody has any experience with that, let me know. Um, you get evaluated. It's $85 a month, and then you pay for your, subscri- your, your prescription. I think it might come with it. I don't know. I have to look into it. I'm really concerned with the cost there, but at the same time, you know, my weight has gone from January 18th to sometime in March, maybe when I actually get my insurance. So I don't know if I want to wait that long. I think when I switch jobs, I'm going to be able to pull out from my 401k. I'm going to use that to pay some debt that has a really, really high interest rate and is really just hurting me financially. And I think that will give me an opportunity to just get in there sooner and get this taken care of. And and, and anyways, I'm like losing focus talking about the fact that I'm losing focus. Um, That's going to make it a lot easier for me to start really pushing towards um, keeping up with the different social media handles that I have, um, getting hopefully guests on, really scheduling this, really putting a little bit more focus, um, forward thinking with this stuff, because I really think I have, you know, a good, a good thing going here. And I, and I kind of want to dedicate that time to it. Um, it's just really, it's just really fucking hard. It really is. And I wish I could kind of explain it better, uh, to some folks, like what happens on like, why I can't just, you know, work on this stuff. Uh, but anyways, uh, if you would, you know, like to reach out to me on those, please do let me know how you feel like everything's going. Let me know what you think, thought about the Stoke reading. Let me know what your sobriety dates are. Let me know where you are with AA. If your relationship with AA has changed over the years, if you feel, you know, maybe it'll ebb and flow for me. Maybe I'll find myself back in the middle of it. Who knows? I'd love to hear some other people give me their, their take on it. Uh, really appreciate that. So step four is honestly a fairly beefy chapter and it, and it should be, it really is the start of the actual work. And for a lot of people, it's the hardest step, or at least that's how it sounds when I'm in meetings. It it seems like a lot of people end up relapsing over this step, which I find kind of interesting just from my own personal experience, since I felt that the ninth step was the hardest one for me to really work through. Uh, In any event, step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know, something to really consider about this step uh, that I've pointed out in previous episode is when you look at all of the different kinds of uh, steps that are out there, different rewritings of it. Um, from atheist to, to spiritual to, you know, there's a Satanist version, all, all the different ones. This step seems to remain the same. This step seems to remain unchanged. And I think really it's just healthy to actually give an objective uh, view of, you know, things that you've done in your past that you might hold on to some guilt with. A lot of this is really just trauma searching. Like it's really just looking for instances where you may have caused trauma or where trauma may have been caused unto you and exploring that, you know, with some people that, that could be, you know, maybe they were victimized as a child. And what I won't say is that, that there's no reason to feel like you're responsible for that instance, but there, there is a responsibility for after years later, decades later, if you're not working through that trauma and it's, and it's causing you harm still and others around you due to your actions because of not working through that, then that, that is the responsibility that's on you, obviously not being victimized. Like that's not, and I've heard people get really stuck on that and struggle with that aspect of this step is feeling like, no, this person sexually assaulted me. This person abused me. That's not my fault. And that's absolutely true. 
That is 100% true. If you have a sponsor that ever tries to make you feel like that you're responsible for that person's actions, get a different sponsor, talk to somebody else, tell that person to fucking fuck off because that's bullshit. Nobody should ever feel that way. What is important is to look at how you learned to deal with that later in life. Um, for me, a lot of the traumas that I had were just things that just had a lot to do with abandonment. It had a lot to do with being left alone. It had a lot to do with with feeling like um, every aspect of my life was kind of in flux. And my life, you know, there's still times I struggle with that. But that had a lot to do with me not feeling like I fit in. It, it, it all culminated into this feeling that the only time that I felt um, like myself was when I was drinking. So this step is really that it's really just getting into finally the core of the meat in as well, you know, as good of a way as possible. I mean, just writing this stuff down isn't a solving of anything. Even when you get into step five and you tell this stuff to somebody else, it doesn't solve anything, but it does give us a starting point. It really does. I feel like there's probably other ways of going about this that maybe is a little healthier, or at least a little easier to digest, but also, there is this sort of feeling that um, this can be done with with just another human that may understand. And so for people that maybe are, are like on the fence about going to therapy or just can't afford that or who are struggling with uh, different aspects of their life and they don't feel like they're ready for that next sort of phase or they feel like that this is the only way that they're going to be able to stay sober, whatever it is, this step can really lead down a good solid path of self-discovery that, that will help you know, sort of mitigate a lot of these underlying causes for drinking in, a, in an unhealthy and alcoholic way or other addiction. Uh, since it's fairly beefy, I'm going to just try to kind of power through some of it. I'll try not to interrupt as much as I usually do. We'll see how that goes. Creation gave us instincts for a person. Without them, we wouldn't be complete human beings. If men and women didn't exert themselves to be secure in their persons, made no effort to harvest food or construct shelter, there'd be no survival. If they didn't reproduce, the earth wouldn't be populated. If there were no social instincts, if men cared nothing for the society of one another, there would be no society. So these desires for the sex relation, for material and emotional security, and for companionship are perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. Yeah, obviously I don't believe that it's like a God-given right uh, for any of that, but they are things that we should protect. Maybe not sex relation, right? Like, yeah, sex is important, but it's interesting that it's like one of four things that are listed here. I kind of feel like that material and emotional security and companionship should be the most important and sex realistically could be left off the table, but it is just such a big motivator. So I guess I understand them, including it. Yet these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper functions. Powerfully, blindly, many times subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. Our desires for sex, for material and emotional security, and for an more important place in society often tyrannize us. When thus out of joint man's natural desires cause him great trouble, practically all the trouble is there. No human being, however good, is exempt from these troubles. Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instinct. When that happens, our great natural assets, the instincts, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. I'm going to be real honest. Uh, the amount of, of like life-changing mistakes I have been willing to make just for the sake of uh, having sex is pretty absurd. I love my daughter. I'm glad that we're building a relationship together, but the fact that I irresponsibly made a child just so that I could get laid is, is just absurd to me. The fact that 
I have in the past, you know, subjugated my morals, uh, allowed people to treat me poorly just so that I could have sex, like in the hopes that I could end up having sex. You know, I was one of those sad kids when I was a teenager that used to end up in the friend zone and complain about like, you know, I do all these nice things for this girl and she still doesn't like me, but you know, cause I was still stuck in this idea that, that, that doing nice things was transactional towards sex. It's like all I fucking thought about. So it's absurd to me to think of that, but also looking at just history. I mean, generational wars were created because somebody wanted to get laid. Whole churches were created because somebody wanted to divorce and get laid by somebody else. Like the, the types of, I mean, I just read that women having birth on their backs, even though it's like unhealthy and unnatural, honestly, and like more difficult of a labor process was all because a, a king liked to watch the women that he had impregnated uh, give birth that way. Like, the, just sex is so fucking weird and prevalent. And it's like a 20-minute, 30-minute ordeal, realistically. You know, maybe it goes longer, maybe it goes shorter, but let's look at an average. It's probably 20 minutes is an average of just, like, maybe pleasure that people will fucking kill over. It's it's really It's really kind of insane to think about. Step four is our vigorous and painstaking effort to discover what these liabilities in each of us have been and are. We want to find exactly how, when, and where our natural desires have warped us. We wish to look squarely at the unhappiness this has caused others and ourselves. By discovering what our emotional deformities are, we can move toward their correction. Without a willing and per uh, persistent effort to do this, there can be little sobriety or contentment for us. Without a searching and fearless moral inventory, most of us have found that the faith which really works in daily living is still out of reach. Before tackling the inventory problem in detail, let's have a closer look at what the basic problem is. Simple example examples like the following take on a world of meaning when we think about them. Suppose a person places sex, sex desire above everything else, in, like, like I just talked about. In such a case, this imperious urge can destroy his chances for material and emotional security, as well as his standing in the community. Another may develop such an obsession for financial security that he wants to do nothing but hoard money. Going to the extreme, he can become a miser or even a recluse who denies himself both family and friends. Nor is the quest for security always expressed in terms of money. How frequently we see a frightened human being determined to depend completely upon a stronger person for guidance and protection. This weak one, failing to meet life's responsibilities with his own resources, never grows up. Disillusionment and helplessness are his lot. In time, all his protectors either flee or die, and he is once more left alone and afraid. See, for me, that's the codependent. And I was very codependent on, on previous relationships. And I've been in a relationship where people have been codependent on me. And it's such an unhealthy dynamic. Yes, there's a part of me that was like, yeah, I, f I feel like I'm in charge and I'm the protector and this is great. But also a part of me that's like, I'm making all your decisions for you and you don't have an identity. And in and vice versa. There's been times where I would allow my partner to make all the decisions for me and did not have my own identity. And it's exhausting. It should be a team effort. It should be a partnership, but I get what they're saying here. And this is actually really well, well worded. I think, you know, don't put one of these above all else. I have a friend who is extremely independent. So, so independent that they've sort of pushed themselves past being able to open up to people in a healthy way and forming any kind of attachments. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of sad to see because I can tell that that's not what they actually want, but they feel secure in doing that. And it's harming relationships with other people, but that, you know, can take time to kind of pull back from 
due to due to fucking unhealed traumas. Like, really, it's, it's all going to just be boiled down to that. We have seen men and women who go power mad, who devote themselves to attempting to rule their fellows. These people often throw to the winds every chance for legitimate security and a happy family life. Whenever a human being becomes a battleground for the instincts, there can be no pay peace. Sorry about the dog barking in the background. It's just been one of those kind of days. I've been trying to push this out since it's just been like a lot of people in and out of the house lately, but um, there just might be some overlapping noise. I apologize. But that is not all the danger. Every time a person imposes his instincts unreasonably upon others, unhappiness follows. If the pursuit of wealth tramples upon people who happen to be in the way, then anger, jealousy, and revenge are likely to be aroused. If sex runs right, there is a similar uproar. Demands made upon other people for too much attention, protection, and love can only invite domination or revulsion in the protectors themselves. Two emotions quite as unhealthy as the demands which evoked them. When an individual's desire for prestige becomes uncontrollable, whether in the sewing circle or at the international conference table, other people suffer and often revolt. This collision of instincts can produce anything from a cold snub to a blazing, blazing revolution. In these ways, we are set in conflict not only with ourselves, but with other people who have instincts too. Alcoholics especially should be able to see that instinct run wild in themselves is the underlying cause of their destructive drinking. Now, I don't believe that that is the underlying cause, this instinct run wild. I don't think this is a matter of instinct. I think all this is just trauma response. When you dive too deep into financial security, there's there's always something underlying that has has to do with like maybe being raised poor and never wanting to live like that again. Maybe seeing... Um, you know, another sibling who went a different way in life and you have to, you know, prove that you're better, you know, like in the instance of my friend, you know, she, she's the way she is. I think, you know, a lot of it to do with the fact that, um, she had a, a parent that let her down and she has a, a sibling that is emotionally forthcoming in a way that creates this need to be emotionally, uh, stunted, you know, and like all this is just, you know, either abuse, trauma. I think a lot of people get stuck on that word trauma. It's interesting the things that can cause trauma. There, there could be just a phrase that somebody has said one time years ago that stuck in our heads. There could be uh, a certain instance of bullying. There could be maybe a teacher that didn't appreciate us a certain way. Our attachment styles are all created around how we were soothed as children. And the fact that a lot of us end up with an unhealthy attachment style just based on that um, has a lot to do with that that being a trauma response, not being soothed in a proper way. Maybe we were yelled at as kids and now we're not, you know, for being loud. Like me, I was yelled at a lot for being, being loud. I was told that it'd just be, I need to be quiet. I need to keep to myself. And now if I'm loud, I'm, it makes me feel uncomfortable. If a party gets too loud, it feels uncomfortable because I had a lot of instances where if things got loud, they were getting violent. And so doubled from that is that in prison, it felt the same way. Loud noises meant violence. So it still affects me. And it's fine. People have trauma. They have a lot of trauma. They have a lot of stuff in their lives that is just going to cause a, a sort of, you know, chemical reaction in our bodies that turns into an emotion. And then we put words to it and we put reaction to it. That's, that's all this is really boiling down to. Not saying that people aren't physically addicted to, to things that happens. Some of us are genetically predisposed 
predispositions to have um, a, a certain chemical response, even physical response to some of these things. But the unhealthiness in drinking that may be caused in other people that don't have that, or even the discovery of this unhealthy need for certain addiction for certain substances, almost all is derived from that. I know people who have said that they've had this great and wonderful, you know, childhood, but when they dug deeper, you know, they still ended up addicts, but then when they dug deeper, they saw that there was a lot of trauma there. They just didn't understand it as trauma because that's that word has been associated with like abuse and real harm, and sometimes it isn't as visible as it might seem. It doesn't have to seem like trauma to be trauma. So, really Really, it just can honestly just be boiled down to that. Not boiled down, meaning that it's like reduced to, oh, I should forgive my mom. No, it's boiled down to, okay, it's as simple as this thing. Maybe it's an instance of things that have happened over the years, but pinpointing that's going to make it a lot easier for me to overcome it. And it's going to make it a lot easier for me to kind of get a hold of and understand my my addictions and my need for uh, having certain substances coat and cover that stuff from the world. But I don't think it's just simply instinct run wild. I, that makes it seem like we're absolved of any real responsibility there, and I don't think that's true. We have drunk to drown feelings of fear, frustration, and depression. We have drunk to escape the guilt of passions, and then have drunk again to make more passions possible. We have drunk for vainglory, that we might the more enjoy foolish dreams of pomp and power. This perverse soul sickness is not pleasant to look upon. Instincts on rampage balk at investigation. The minute we make a serious attempt to probe them, we are liable to suffer severe reactions. Uh, Brene Brown calls this a, a response to shame. And that, if you've not read the book, definitely read the book, uh, Darren Greatly. Uh, she talks a lot about vulnerability and shame. She talks a lot about how when we lash out, especially in our drinking, she doesn't really specify that, but I can associate it with that. Um, a lot of the times it comes down to just being shameful. Somebody hurt our feelings, sure, but sometimes knowing we're wrong causes shame. And causes us to lash out and causes us to do harm to other people is like a protection. And that's quite, kind of what they're, they're mentioning here. If temperamentally we are on the depressive side, we are apt to be swamped with guilt and self-loathing. We wallow in this messy bog, often getting a misshapen and painful pleasure out of it. As we morbidly pursue this melancholy activity, we may sink to a point of such despair that nothing but oblivion looks possible as a solution. Here, of course, we have lost all perspective, and therefore all genuine humility. For this is pride in reverse. This is not a moral inventory at all. It is a very, pro uh, it is the very process by which the depressive has so often been led to the bottle and extinction. If, however, our natural disposition is inclined to self-righteousness or grandiosity, our reaction will be just the opposite. We will be offended at AA's suggested inventory. No doubt we shall point with pride to the good lives we thought we led before the bottle cut us down. We shall claim that our serious character defects, if we think we have any at all, have been caused chiefly by excessive drinking. This being so, we think it logically follows that sobriety, first, last, and all the time, is the only thing we need to work for. We believe that our one-time good characters will be revived the moment we quit alcohol. If we were pretty nice people all along, except for our drinking, what need is there for a moral inventory now that we are sober? I think a lot of the times that people get hung up on this step is that they just really honestly don't want to get down and do the work because of them feeling shame for the things that they did, but also because I think in in a lot of us, sometimes, maybe even in me when I was doing this the first time, I don't know, my, my fourth step recently was not this way, but there's like, there's a there's an identity 
crisis that occurs. Like if I give this stuff up, because, you know, of course, we're going to forward think this, right? Um, you can't just focus on I'm supposed to just write this stuff down. It turns into, well, if I give up these things. But there's an identity associated to so much of this. Our identity is made up so much of all these responses, of all these things that have occurred. And it's a little fearful to give it up because my self-loathing allowed me to feel like, I okay, if I, if I hate myself enough that I deserve this, then if I remove everything that I hated about myself and I no longer feel like I deserve this, then I have to actually do the work that comes after. Like I have to actually participate in life and I have to be like responsible for the things that I've never really worked on. So I, you know, I can see some hesitation coming from even that. We also clutch at another wonderful excuse for avoiding an inventory. Our present anxieties and troubles require caused by the behavior of other people. People who really need a moral inventory. We firmly believe that if only they'd treat us better, we'd be all right. Therefore, we think our indignation is justified and reasonable, that our re resentments are the right kind. We aren't the guilty ones. They are. I have met plenty of people in recovery who feel that they've not, they've literally never done anything wrong. And I just can't even, I can't even be bothered to work with them. Like I had someone who's like, oh, I tried to do a fourth step and, you know, I had like one thing myself. There wasn't anything else. And it's like, you know, <laughs> uh, you're going to struggle. Like, I, I mean, I, I know I've said that you can't decide for other people what the recovery is going to look like. But if you're not willing to make any kind of conscious effort to actually change who you are in some fundamental way, uh, i.e. by working on past traumas, by forgiving people around you for things that they've done, by forgiving yourself for things you've done, by acknowledging the wrongs that you've done other people. If you're not willing to do this in some general sense, you're going to struggle. That's just plainly how living works. If that wasn't the case, if literally changing nothing could still provide some sort of absolute uh, fundamental growth as a human, then none of us would be here. Nothing changes if nothing changes, right? I mean, if like we were going to just hold on to this idea that we've never done anything wrong, that everybody else are the reasons why things are you know going poorly in our lives, et cetera, et cetera. I can't imagine that leading to a healthy version of yourself. So yeah, you're going to struggle. If you can't open up a little bit about this kind of stuff, you're going to struggle. It doesn't have to be a four step. It's going to come in therapy. It's going to come in other forms, other recovery groups, other recovery programs. Have you look at this stuff in some way. And if you can't have an open mind about the parts that you've done and have an open mind about the fact that not everybody who did harm is the reason you are the way you are, then you know, you're just going to struggle. At this stage of the inventory proceedings, our sponsors come to the rescue. They can do this for they are carriers of AA's tested experience with step four. That's not always true. They comfort the melancholy one by first showing him that his case is not strange or different, that his character defects are probably not more numerous or worse than those of anyone else in AA. This the sponsor prob probably proves by talking freely and easily and without exhibitionism about his own defects past and present. This calm yet realistic stock taking is immensely reassuring. The sponsor probably points out that the newcomer has some assets which can be noted along with his liabilities. This tends to clear away morbidity and encourage balance. As soon as he begins to be more objective, the newcomer can fearlessly, rather than fearfully, look at his own defects. The sponsors of those who feel they need no inventory are confronted with quite another problem. This is because people who are driven by pride of self unconsciously blind themselves to their liabilities. These newcomers scarcely need comforting. The problem is to help them discover a chink in the uh, walls their ego has built, through which the light of reason can shine. 
First off, they can be told that the majority of AA members have suffered severely from self-justification during their drinking days. For most of us, self-justification was the maker of excuses. Excuses, of course, for drinking and for all kinds of crazy and damaging conduct. We had made the invention of alibis a fine art. We had to drink because times were hard or times were good. We had to drink because at home we were smothered with love or got none at all. We had to drink because at work we were great successes or dismal failures. We had to drink because our nation had won a war or lost a peace. And so it went ad infinitum. So this, yeah, the, the person that I... Uh, kind of referenced who felt that they didn't have a four step to work on because they, they didn't feel like they did anything wrong in their drinking. Like it, it slowly became obvious that they were, they were late for work. They, they weren't good friends to the people around them. They were shitty to the community, like all subtle things that they didn't feel like was their responsibility. It's not that big a deal. I didn't really affect anybody's lives. That's not true. It just isn't. If you're drinking to the point to where you're in a recovery program, you've fucking harmed people's lives in some way, maybe a small way, but still enough that that's a part of this, this process that should be examined. But in AA, we slowly learned that something had to be done about our vengeful resentments, self-pity and unwarranted pride. We had to see that every time we played the big shot, we turned people against us. We had to see that when we harbored grudges and planned revenge for such defeats, we were really beating ourselves with the club of anger we had intended to use on others. We learned that if we were seriously disturbed, our first need was to quiet the disturbance regardless of who or what we thought caused it. To see how erratic emotions victimized us often took a long time. We could perceive them quickly in others, but only slowly in ourselves. First of all, we had to admit that we had many of these defects, even though such disclosures were painful and humiliating. Where other people were concerned, we had to drop the word blame from our speech and thought. This required great willingness to even to begin. But once over the first two or three high hurdles, the course ahead began to look easier. For we had started to get perspective on ourselves, which is another way of saying that we were gaining in humility. I've heard uh, the term used, and I think I mentioned this in the, in the episode where this was first like talked about, uh, that the character defects are really just defense mechanisms against our traumas to protect us, uh, protect our drinking, protect the, the, the shame that we felt, protect the hate that we had for others, like all our, our defects of character. And I know these programs talk a lot about like some of those defects, not, you can't have any defects left over. I have a few. I will be honest about that. My sarcasm, the way that I, I sort of like off the cuff throw jokes out there to protect myself, a lot of that's still there. I examine it regularly, a little more than I used to. I try to make sure that I'm not causing harm with it, but that all developed, that sort of style of humor that I have all developed from um, that same trauma response. And it is a character defect in that it probably does you know, annoy people and irritate people and cause some kind of harm. But there's just an aspect of that, that I'm just not willing to give up. I have found that I don't need to drink over that. I also have found that for the most part, people enjoy my sense of humor. So while it would be written down as a character defect, it's not something I'm willing to give up. Of course, the depressive and the power driver are personality extremes, types with which AA and the whole world abound. Often these personalities are just as sharply defined as the examples given, but just as often some of us will fit more or less into both classifications. Human beings are never quite alike. So each of us, when making an inventory, will need to determine uh, what his individual character defects are. Having found the shoes that fit, we ought to step into them and walk with new confidence that he is at last on the right track. Now let's ponder the need for a list of the more glaring personality defects all of us have in varying degrees. To those having religious training, such a list would set forth uh, serious violations of moral principles. 
Some others will think of this list as defects of character. Still others will call it an in index of maladjustments. Some will become quite annoyed if there is talk about immorality, let alone sin. But all who are in the least responsible will agree upon one point, that there is plenty wrong with us alcoholics about which plenty will have to be done if we are to expect sobriety, progress, and any real ability to cope with life. I do agree with that too. Um, not that... You know, I, I don't I don't agree with the idea that uh, we would have all been fine had we not ended up drunks. I don't know that the alcohol really had a lot to do with me being the, the way that I had become um, outside of the character defects that I had, quote unquote, if that's even what you want to call them, was a protection of the drinking of the thing that supposedly made me feel like I was treating the things that I was ignoring, the you know, the, the reactions to my traumas. Removing the alcohol didn't cure all that. I struggled for the first year or two that I was in sobriety, but mostly the first year. Because even though the alcohol was gone, you know, those raw nerves were still there. If anything, they were more aptly exposed. And I was more easily swayed by emotions and by whatever was left over. To avoid falling into confusion over the names these defects should be called, let's take a universally recognized list of major human failings. The seven deadly sins of pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. <laughs> it is not by accident that pride heads the procession. For pride, leading to self-justification and always spurred by conscious or unconscious fears, is the basic breeder of most human difficulties, the chief block to true progress. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. When the satisfaction of our instincts for sex, security, and society becomes the sole object of our lives, then pride steps in to justify our excesses. I mean, I, you know, pride, whatever, I this is just ego. I mean, yes, on a broader scope, it's all ego, but there's, you know, the ego that we feed uh, in line with what lines, you know, what would would be considered pride a lot a lot of times is the one that was the one for me that was the most difficult to sort of grab the reins of i i would get stuck in now that i had confidence i would go the other way and become a little overconfident a little arrogant a little prideful a lot of things i just wouldn't do you know due to my my ego apologies i wouldn't make or or worse i would gaslight myself into thinking that it was okay that i acted certain ways because I deserve to act that way after years of being on the lower end of everything, you know. All these fa failings generate fear, a soul sickness in its own right. Then fear in turn generates more character defects. Unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied drives us to co uh, covet the possessions of others, to lust for sex and power, to become angry when our in uh, instinctive demands are threatened, to be envious when the ambitions of others seem to be realized while others are not. We eat, drink, and grab for more of everything than we need, fearing we shall never have enough. And with genuine alarm at the prospect of work, we stay lazy. We loaf and procrastinate, or at best work grudgingly and under half steam. These fears of the termites that ceaselessly devour the foundations of whatever sort of life we try to build. And that one I do agree with almost exactly as it's written. We, we can really build a lot on some shaky-ass foundation if we're not paying attention to the fear that may have gone into the building of that foundation. I definitely fall into that. So when AA suggests a fearless moral inventory, it must seem to every newcomer that more is being asked of him than can be done. Both his pride and his fear beat him back every time he tries to look within himself. Pride says, you need not pass this way, and fear says, you dare not look. But the testimony of AAs who have really tried a moral inventory is that pride and fear of this sort turn out to be boogeyman, nothing else. 
Once we have a complete willingness to take inventory and exert ourselves to do the job thoroughly, a wonderful light falls upon this foggy scene. As we persist, a brand new kind of confidence is born, and the sense of relief at finally facing ourselves is indescribable. These are the uh, first fruits of step four. Yeah, I can get behind that. Once you start really analyzing and examining the fears, you know, going back to that foundation analogy, uh, the fears that go into making a shaky foundation, it's a lot easier to, to... to be able to process them and not act on them, not build on them, not build over them, not hide them. I I have found this to be true for me. There is a certain confidence that comes from that that I don't think I've ever really found in any other way. I didn't find it drinking. I didn't find it doing drugs. I didn't find it when I was in great shape, had a bunch of attention from, from women all of a sudden. I didn't find it in any other way outside of inside myself. Once I stopped building the foundation based on those fears, based on other people, based on expectations, I found a real confidence that seems to persist. By now, the newcomer has probably arrived at the following conclusions, that his character defects, representing instincts gone astray, have been the primary cause of his drinking and his failure at life, that unless he is now willing to work hard at the elimination of worst of these defects, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him, that all the faulty foundation of his life will have to be torn out and built anew on bedrock. Now, willing to commence the search for his own defects, he will ask, just how do I go about this? How do I take an inventory of myself? Step four is but the beginning of a lifetime practice. It can be suggested that he first look at those personal flaws which are acutely troublesome and fairly obvious. Using his best judgment of what has been right and what has been wrong, he might make a rough survey of his conduct with respect to his primary instincts for sex, security, and society. Looking back over his life, he can readily get underway by consideration of questions such as these. When and how and in just what instances did my selfish pursuit of the sex relation damage other people and me? What people were hurt and how badly? Did I spoil my marriage and injure my children? Did I jeopardize my standing in the community? Just how did I react to these situations at the time? Did I burn with a guilt that nothing could extinguish? Or did I insist that I was pursued and not the pursuer and thus absolve myself? How have I reacted to frustration in sexual manners? When denied, did I become vengeful or depressed? Did I take it out on other people? If there was rejection or coldness at home, did I use this as a reason for promiscuity? And I think all that's really important. The idea that we actually self-examine, you know, we don't leave any stone unturned is a great idea. Uh, It's easy to get stuck in shame and guilt and to get hold up in the emotions that this stuff is going to bring up. But I implore anybody who decides to take this step in any form, uh, really consider that this is just an examination. We're just looking at this stuff right now. We're just looking at how we might have acted because we did these things or the things that may have caused us to act a certain way. We're not self-flagellating. We're not beating ourselves up. Self-talk is important too. Looking at this stuff as objectively as possible is, is an important step to rebuilding that foundation. And that's what we got to keep in mind when we're doing this kind of stuff. Also of importance for most alcoholics are the questions they may they must ask about their behavior respecting financial and emotional security. In these areas, fear, greed, possessiveness, and pride have too often done their worst. Surveying his business or employment record, almost any alcoholic can ask questions like these. In addition to my drinking problem, what character defects contributed to my financial instability? Did fear and inferiority about my fitness for my job destroy my confidence and fill me with conflict? Did I try to cover up those feelings of inadequacy by bluffing, cheating, lying, or evading responsibility? 
or by gri griping that others fail to recognize my true exceptional abilities? Did I overvalue myself and play the big shot? Did I have such unprincipled ambition that I double-crossed and undercut my associates? Was I extravagant? Did I recklessly borrow money, caring little whether it was repaid or not? Was I a, a pinch penny, refusing to support my family properly? Did I cut corners financially? What about the quick money, deals, the stock market, and the races? One of the biggest things that I've had to really work on since I've gotten sober is my finances, and I have not always done great. In fact, I'm still kind of where I was when I got started. The only difference is, is that because I've made consistent payments on stuff, my credit score continues to go up. Now, moving jobs is putting me in a position where I can finally get ahead on some stuff because I'm going to make the, the brash decision to cash out my 401k and use that to pay down uh, card payments, uh, some credit cards that I have that have huge, huge, huge interest. Because honestly, if I don't, I'm just going to be continued, continuing to live paycheck by paycheck and I'm going to live underneath that stress. And this is going to give me an opportunity, hopefully, if I do this right, to pay down some other stuff that is still looming, like my student loans and my car. You know, I'd love to just get that taken care of. The fucking check engine light came back on again. So, you know, there's... This was a big sticking point for me, and I have a feeling it's going to be a sticking point for a lot of people. Finances can be a pretty big stressor in a lot of people's lives. It has been for, for me for a long time, and even though I feel like in some cases I've made headway, in other cases I'm still right exactly where I was um, three years ago. So my relationship with that stress has had to change, and I think that's what this kind of a step really does for me. I can look all these things and, and like, like again, beat myself up over it and make myself feel like shit because I'm not really making any headway. But I could also look at the aspects of it that have really worked in my favor, like my credit score going up. You know, I, I am allowed to get decent uh, interest rates on things like my car, you know, 7.8% interest it would have been and was absolutely impossible three three or four years ago. Actually, four years ago, my interest, what I uh, qualified for was 26%. So, you know, it took some time and I probably could have steam, uh, gotten it done a lot faster. But also, I'm making progress. And a lot of that progress is based on how I kind of worded things for myself and through the four, the four step. Okay, make my payments on time all the time. Don't take any new credit card debt. When I get a card closed, don't use it anymore. Uh, you know, things like that that I, I was like really struggling with, I've really been able to put into practice. Business women in AA will naturally find that many of these questions apply to them too. But the alcoholic housewife can also make the fam family financially insecure. She can juggle charge accounts, manipulate the food budget, spend her afternoons gambling, and run her husband into debt by irresponsibility, waste, and extravagance. Of course, it's a different set of things that could go wrong for the, the businesswoman, right? But all alcoholics who have drunk themselves out of jobs, family, and friends will need to cross-examine themselves ruthlessly to determine how their own personality defects have thus demolished their security. The most common symptoms of emotional insecurity are worry, anger, self-pity, and depression. These stem from causes which sometimes seem to be within us and at other times come from without. To take inventory in this respect, we ought to consider carefully all personal relationships which brings continuous or recurring trouble. It should be remembered that this kind of insecurity may arise in any area where instincts are threatened. Questioning directed to this end might run like this. Looking at both past and present, what sex situations have caused me anxiety, bitterness, frustration, or depression? Appraising each situation fairly, can I see where I have been at fault? Did these per uh, perplexities beset me because of self selfishness or unreasonable demands? Jesus, I'm fucking mushmouth today. Or, if my disturbance was seemingly caused by the behavior of others, why do I lack the ability to accept conditions I cannot change? 
These are the sort of fundamental inquiries that can disclose the source of my discomfort and indicate whether I may be able to alter my own conduct and so adjust myself serenely to self-discipline. So much of my life was really ruled by uh, outside, you know, influences. I allowed so many things outside my control to just affect every aspect of my life. Suppose that financial insecurity can, uh, constantly arouses these same feelings. I can ask myself to what extent have my own mistakes fed my gnawing anxieties? And if the actions of others are part of the cause, what can I do about that? If I am unwilling, unable to change the present state of affairs, am I willing to take the measures necessary to shape my life to conditions as they are? Questions like these, more of which will come to mind easily in each individual case, will help turn up the root causes. But it is from our twisted uh, relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. And that's me in a, in a nutshell right there. Our egomania digs into disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or we depend upon them far too much. If we would lean too heavily on people, they will sooner or later fail us, for they are human too, cannot possibly meet our incessant demands. I don't feel on either of those. I don't insist on dominating people. And I mean, there's people in my life that I'm sure that like my ego is dominated. And there's people in my life that I have, you know, codependent on been codependent on. But for the most part, I keep them, at, keep them at far enough arm's distance that I can't really be influenced or influenced. They just assume they're going to leave. So I leave them far enough that when that happens, it doesn't hurt. In this way, our insecurity grows in festers. When we habitually try to manipulate others to our willful desires, they revolt and resist us heavily. Then we develop hurt feelings, a sense of persecution, and a desire to retaliate. As we redouble our efforts at control and continue to fail, our suffering becomes acute and constant. We have not once sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always we try to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked the partnership relation with any of those around us. Of true brotherhood, we had small comprehension. Yeah, that, that definitely sums me up, even in sobriety. Sometimes even recently, like I'm always questioning this stuff. This is the hardest trauma for me to really overcome is like my ability to connect with others. Some will object to many of the questions posed because they think their own character defects have not been so glaring. To these, it can be suggested that a conscientious examination is likely to reveal the very defects the objectionable questions are concerned with. Because our surface record hasn't looked too bad, we have frequently been abashed to find that this is so simply because we have buried these self-same defects deep down in us under thick layers of self-justification. Whatever the defects, they have finally ambushed us into alcoholism and misery. Therefore, thoroughness ought to be the watchword when taking inventory. In this connection, it is wise to write out our questions and answers. It will be an aid to clear thinking and honest appraisal. It will be the first tangible evidence of our complete willingness to move forward. So just to reiterate again, step four is, I think, the most unchanged step across the face of all of the AAs or the, the different offshoots of AAs. And there's got to be a reason for that. I mean, secular version, Native American version of this, uh, Buddhist version, satanic version, Christian, strictly Christian version, whatever version, this this one remains almost completely unchanged. And I... I just think even even the fact that in other recovery programs, there is a version of this kind of inventory. So there's, there is a lot of 
I don't know if there's data supporting the use of this. I don't know how psychologists feel. I know they feel something about journaling and about writing down things to yourself that you wouldn't necessarily say to other people of looking and examining your you know, inner struggles and things that you've done in your past and the ways that those have made you feel. I mean, it's just pretty much across the board. So, you know, if you're on the fence about doing a four step because you're not really sure how you're going to do the steps at all, uh, give this a shot, you know. Even if you don't end up reading it all to somebody, even if it never goes anywhere, this is what I've told a sponsee in the past who was scared about doing this. This step is just asking you to write this stuff down. What you choose to do with it is really up to you. And some people don't believe that you need to tell this to another person, and that's fine. Some people have found that the best solution is to just say it out loud and then burn it. Whatever process comes after isn't there yet. You're not there right now. If you haven't worked this step, you're only on step four. So don't let this be a reason that you drink. If you are hard pressed to have AA be fulfilled in a certain way and you get stuck on this and you feel like this is what's going to lead you to drink, it's not the step. It's not wanting to deal with the stuff that the step's going to bring up. So maybe bring it up and deal with it. All right. Tradition four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Man, I just really like the traditions. I really do. This again, this is just another important part of what I think has kept AA survivable and lasting even as long as it has, even with all the problems it might have. Each group ought to be autonomous. Like they, each group should just be its own entity. There's some things that it might, you know, have to consider because it might affect AA on a whole if it weren't. But the fact that this this tradition exists is why secular sobriety exists, why agnost AA agnostica recovery meetings exist, why NA recovery meetings exist, why, why this has been able to be, you know, why there are super, super fundamentalist meetings, why there are LGBTQ plus meetings, why there are young people's meetings. You know, I've mentioned before, there's a meeting where like it's super rowdy and people interrupt each other and you kind of sign up for that when you go to it and people have found it to be extremely valuable because it's not taking it seriously. But when it does get serious, it gets super serious. And, you know, when it's your turn to share, like you pass a zombie leg to each other. But at the end of the day, it's an AA meeting. And this is the kind of stuff that kind of, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be 100% done with AA because of stuff like this. Anonymity is a $10 word, but in relation to us, it means very simply that every AA group can manage its affairs exactly as it pleases, except when AA as a whole is threatened. Comes now the same question raised in Tradition 1. Isn't such liberty foolishly dangerous? I don't believe it is. Obviously, it's been proven that it isn't. Over the years, every conceivable deviation from our 12 steps and traditions has been tried. That was sure to be, since we are so largely a band of ego-driven individualists. Children of chaos, we have defiantly played with every brand of fire, only to emerge unharmed, and we think wiser. These very deviations created a vast process of trial and error, which, under the grace of God, has brought us to where we stand today. And I think like the fact that they trust people to make their own version of this program says a lot about how much they believe that this program will figure itself out. Because if a, if a meeting is not any good, people stop going. And if a meeting ends up becoming harmful, then people will let, they'll, you know, still do something about it. There was a meeting in New York that ended up like harboring a cult and people did something about it. There's been meetings where, you know, predators have shown up and they've been shown the door. There's been meetings where they, you know, they practice like just kind of a, a traditionalist approach that, that wouldn't really survive in other meetings. And it's just, it's just because it's what people like, you know, there's a meeting that's near my house, not near my house, but say 15 minutes away 
that like it's a big giant podium meeting and and you have to dress up <laughs> you have to like follow these weird protocols and if you go and get a chip your sponsor has to go with you and give it to you or you can't claim the chip like it's just a bunch of weird little rules like that and people love it man it's it's a, it's a huge beating i've gone to one of their speaker meetings it's like 200 people there um and, and it, i think it's really important that we maintain that when aa's traditions were first published in 1946 we'd become sure that an aa group could stand almost any amount of battering we saw that the group exactly like the individual must eventually conform to whatever tested principles would guarantee survival. We had discovered that there was perfect safety in the process of trial and error. So confident of this had we become that the original statement of AA tradition carried this significant sentence. Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. This meant of course that we had been given the courage to declare each AA group an individual entity strictly reliant on its own conscience as a guide to action. In charting this enormous expansion of freedom, we found it necessary to post only two storm signals. A group ought not do anything which would greatly injure AA as a whole, nor ought it affiliate itself with anything or anybody else. There would be real danger should we commence to call some groups wet, others dry, still others Republican or Communist, and yet others Catholic or Protestant. The AA group would have to stick to its course or be hopelessly lost. Sobriety had to be its sole objective. In all other respects, there was perfect freedom of will and action. Every group had the right to be wrong. When AA was still young, lots of eager groups were forming. In a town we'll call Middleton, a real crackerjack had started up. The townspeople were as hot as firecrackers about it. <laughs> I love these old-ass sayings, man. Stargazing, the elders dreamed of innovations. They figured the town needed a great big alcoholic center, a kind of pilot plant AA groups would duplicate everywhere beginning on the ground floor there would be a club in the second story they would uh, sober up drunks and hand them currency for their back debts the third deck would house an educational program quite non-controversial of course in imagination the gleaming center was to be to go up several stories more but three would do for a start this would all take a lot of money other people's money believe it or not wealthy townsfolk bought the idea there were though a few conservative dissenters among the alcoholics they wrote the foundation uh, which is the Alcoholic Foundation. This was back in 1954. AA's headquarters in New York wanted to know about this sort of streamlining. They understood that the elders, just to nail things down good, were about to apply to the foundation for a charter. These few were disturbed and skeptical. I don't know if this is true or not, but this sounds like what may have happened or almost happened with the Rockefellers and getting all the cash that Bill Wilson thought he was about to get for building this big giant center like they were going to like streamline alcohol just this is exactly the kind of wording that they're describing now i'm wondering if that's in reference of course there was a promoter in the deal a super promoter by his eloquence he allayed all fears despite advice from the foundation that it could issue no charter and that ventures which mixed an aa group with medication and education had come to sticky ends elsewhere to make things safe for the promoter organized three corporations and became president of them all. Freshly painted, the new center shone. The warmth of it all spread through the town. Soon things began to hum. To ensure foolproof, conscious operation, 61 rules and regulations were adopted. But alas, this bright scene was not long in darkening. Confusion replaced serenity. It was found that some drunks yearned for education but doubted if they were alcoholics. The personality defects of others could be cured maybe with a loan. Some were club-minded, but it was just a question of taking care of the lonely heart. Sometimes the swarming applicants would go for all three floors. Some would start at the top and come through to the bottom, becoming club, club members. Others started in the club, pitched a binge, were hospitalized, then graduated to education on the third floor. 
It was a beehive of activity, all right, but unlike a beehive, it was confusion compounded. An AA group as such simply couldn't handle this sort of project. All too late, that was discovered. Then came the inevitable explosion. Something like the day that the boiler burst in Wombly's clapboard factory. I don't know what the fuck any of that references. A chill choke damp of fear and frustration fell over the group. When that lifted, a wonderful thing happened. The head promoter wrote the foundation office. He said he wished he'd paid some attention to AA experience. Then he did something that has that was become an AA classic. It all went on a little card about golf, so a golf score size, which I'm guessing is pretty small. I've never played golf. The cover read Middleton Group Number One, Rule Number Sixty Two. Once the card was unfolded, a single pungent sen- sentence leaped to the eye: "Don't take yourself too damn seriously." Thus, it was that under tradition four, an AA group had exercised its right to be wrong. Moreover, it had performed a great service for Alcoholics Anonymous because it had been humbly willing to apply the lessons it learned. It had picked itself up and with a laugh had gone on to better things. I love that this like this whole huge like epicenter of just chaotic insanity was chalked up as it had picked itself up with a laugh and got on to do better things. Anyways, the chief architect standing in the ruins of his dream could laugh at himself. And that is the very acme of humility. I'm guessing that's that's got to be Bill Wilson who laughed himself off and is also writing about it himself so he could paint that any way that he wanted to. But yeah, tradition four is pretty important. It has a lot to do with why so many different types of groups exist. It's probably the only reason why, you know, in any major town you can go and you can find a meeting that's going to fit your needs. I still feel it's important. We stress the importance of inclusion in all meetings, but the fact that you can find a tailor-made meeting, or you, maybe you find that there's there's a meeting that isn't really serving the needs in your town, and, and you feel you want to start it up, as long as you get a couple more people, it's pretty easy to do. I think there's a lot of freedom in that. And again, it's a lot to do with why uh, the program has survived the way it has. All right, so I apologize for this run just a tad bit longer than expected. Um, I've been trying to keep it around an hour. I failed since I started doing this format. So yeah, please reach out to me if you feel like that that's just too much. Maybe I'll split these up into two episodes if we think that that might be a better fit. I don't want to lose any people because I start running on a little bit longer. I know I talk a little bit uh, too much at the beginning. That seems to go mostly in favor of what people like to, to hear. So I don't know how much of that I'm going to really curb. I'm trying to do my best and not just making that like the entirety of the episode. So I'm not like trying to bull rush through the reading. We'll see how that goes. Um, I'm finishing this up on Monday, the 20th. Uh, This is in fact my sobriety date and I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, I honestly forgot, even though I talked about this yesterday and did some recording yesterday, I forgot today. I didn't until just now it's 9 13 PM. I didn't until now, just, just now really think about the fact that, Oh, I'm, I've been sober for three years. And I know for a lot of people that these milestones are really important. I think just for me, like, I don't feel it as a cause of celebration, not saying that I'm not celebrating. Like I'm not like, woo, I made it three years. It's just like, it's kind of any other day. I don't celebrate like that. I guess I've never really been that way about my, my birthday or the holidays, like these big things like that. I like to celebrate it when the emotions overcome me, you know, there'll be that day I'm driving to work and I'll be like, Oh my God, I've been sober for a long time or what feels like a long time, but not to say that other people shouldn't celebrate and not to say that other people shouldn't celebrate for me. I have friends that are extremely excited about the fact that I have three years more excited than I am. And I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. So anyways, I appreciate everybody for listening. Um, I really look forward to these. I, and while the holidays have made it a little bit difficult for me to, to really get these ahead of time, I've been trying to get two or three 
in in the can so that I'm ahead of the game, but I have not been able to do that for the last few weeks, last few episodes. Uh, in any event, I look forward to the next one. I appreciate every single one of you that's listened, and thank you for keeping me sober one more day.